DEA Sky Thorleafson presents Adaptational, the hardcover edition. Revisiting the best episodes of our first season, plus newly recorded content that was not featured during the original run. Join us at the end of the episode for our special new segment, The Appendices. For those seeking further insight into the source material, its history in cinema, and my personal connection to it. Now, enjoy the show. Today's episode was originally released on March 18th, 2018. Chapter 2 It was seven minutes after midnight. The dog was lying on the grass in the middle of the lawn in front of Mrs. Shear's house. Its eyes were closed. It looked as if it was running on its side, the way dogs run when they think they are chasing a cat in a dream. But the dog was not running or asleep. The dog was dead. There was a garden fork sticking out of the dog. Mark Haddon, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest episode of Adaptational. My name is Sky Thorleafson, and I'm here to continue the discussion about the adaptation process, what's great about the stories you love, and what could possibly happen to them if they were turned into films. Well, the Oscar season is now in full swing, so I could talk to you about how my preferences fall as far as my favorite films of the year are concerned, But you know what? I'm tired of talking about last year, to some extent. So it's time to move forward. It's time to look into the future and talk about what we should be anticipating in 2018. I have a list of five films that I'm looking forward to that are based on other sources. I'm anticipating them depending on whether or not I've I've had any exposure to the original material or just because there's an interesting subject involved. So this is my list of the anticipated films of 2018. Starting in February, we're getting Annihilation, the latest film from Alex Garland, who also made Ex Machina, one of my favorite films from 2015. Now, I am only in the process of reading this book, But the instant that I saw the first trailer, wherein Natalie Portman wanders into a vast, unknown area, covered with a massive, translucent veil, I was immediately hooked. The trailer for this film looks fantastic, at least the first one. The second one, I closed my eyes during the process of watching it because I wasn't sure if it was spoiling the movie or not. But this is an exciting subject for me. I love exploration and science fiction, so I'm going to be finishing that novel fairly soon in order to be caught up. It might be released in theaters, it might be released in Netflix, I'm not quite sure. Next up is A Wrinkle in Time. Now here's a subject that most people will be familiar with either through high school or elementary school or university for all I know. Madeline Langle's uh, classic science fantasy story about a young girl and her brother who are trapped in a strange world as they're searching for their father, joined in the process by three different witches. It's been a long time since I read this book, but I am still looking forward to it because Ava DuVernay, the director, has a very strong track record. She also directed Selma, the documentary 13th, 
She's a really strong talent, and I really am looking forward to the visual scale of this movie. Released by Disney and starring Chris Pine as the children's father, this is probably going to be a big selling point for a lot of people, and I'm very interested to see what happens. Ready Player One. This needs no introduction. Every nerd has read this book in the last five years, and they either love it or hate it. Fortunately, I have a very strong affinity for it. The adaptation is written by Ernest Klein, who wrote the original novel, directed by Steven Spielberg. Oh my god, this is perfect. Now, it doesn't look like an exact adaptation of the original novel, because the novel about a fantasy world created inside of a computer where millions of people escape the drudgery of their ordinary lives in a dystopian world does look a little bit streamlined, but from the trailers, it still looks incredible. And following up on Steven Spielberg's direction of The Post and the BFG, it looks like it's time to get back into the mode of an action movie from Spielberg, and I love this world, I'm looking forward to it so much. So we jump from March until October now with the release of the latest adaptation of the Millennium book series. No, not the girl who played with fire. The girl in the spider's web. The fourth novel in the series. I'm okay with that. Basically, it's a reboot. I'm a huge fan of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, and especially of the main character, Lisbeth Salander. I've seen two different adaptations of her character by, by very different actresses, Numi Rapace and Rooney Mara. They've both had their strengths and they've both had their weaknesses. But I'm interested to see what now Claire Foy, the star of The Crown, is going to be bringing to this character that none of the other actresses have provided. This is going to be an interesting dive back into this world and into this character, hopefully. Lastly, in December, we have... Mortal Engines. Not Mortal Instruments, Mortal Engines. Now, I have not read this novel or even heard of it until the movie was announced. At the same time, though, what attracts me to the world is the setting. Think Mad Max meets Howl's Moving Castle. That's what the trailer looks like, in my opinion. Cities on wheels, capturing each other and assimilating them into their massive city worlds. This is produced by Peter Jackson and directed by one of the pre-visualization artists for The Lord of the Rings. Now that seems like a pretty big leap for a comparatively lesser experienced person. At the same time though, Jackson has been trying to give Christian Rivers, the director, a career for a really long time. So hopefully this is an indicator that he has a lot of trust in Rivers' abilities as a director. I'm very curious to see what kind of vision he provides and how this world is constructed. I'll probably read the book first, but I'm looking forward to it all the same. But with that out of the way, it's time to move on to the actual discussion of the week. Or month, depending on how long you've been paying attention. (laughs) I apologize for the delay for this episode, but I have been focusing a lot on my studies and... Generally speaking, the episodes are going to take longer to produce than I expected. However, thankfully, I'm still talking about subjects that I am familiar with, so let's just dive into this. Mark Haddon's The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Your spoiler warning is now on approach, and it's right there. 
The curious incident of the dog in the night time, which I'll now call the curious incident from here on end, is the story of Christopher John Francis Boone, a 15-year-old boy living in Swindon in England. He has a very specialized set of interests. He loves mathematics. He enjoys the presence of animals, but not so much people. He's obsessed with science, documentaries, and just facts in general. And he hates the color yellow. Ladies and gentlemen, meet my fictional avatar, he said, attempting to be funny. Christopher's life is fairly uneventful, aside from the fact that he is now applying to take his A-grade maths, at a very young age, comparatively speaking. However, something suddenly happens. One night, seven minutes after midnight, he sees the carcass of a dead dog in his neighbor's front yard, with a garden fork sticking right out of it. After a series of miscommunications where the police take Christopher to the station, he's released with a warning against assaulting a police officer. Don't think about it too much, he just doesn't like other people's hands on him. After that point, however, Christopher becomes obsessed with the incident of the dog in the nighttime, and he begins to take the mindset of his favorite fictional character, Sherlock Holmes. He becomes a detective searching for the answers to how this dog was killed, who killed it, what was their motive, and how does it tie into the disappearance of his neighbor's husband, Mr. Shears. I note the happenstance that I'm talking once again about a teenage novel about a teenage boy with a very specific set of interests. This is not too far off from my interest in Catcher in the Rye, although I like both of them for very different reasons. Catcher in the Rye is a lot more universal in terms of how Holden Caulfield is very against the system that he does not want to support. He does not want to be a part of at all. Christopher Boone is somewhat similar in that sense, only he has a very specific reason why he doesn't like these people. He literally doesn't understand them. Human behavior is unfamiliar to him. He doesn't feel obligated to accept certain mentalities. He's not a big fan of metaphors, he doesn't really understand facial expressions very well, and he doesn't feel the need to make friends very often because the other students in his class are, from his perspective, stupid. They don't have the same skill set or the same interests as he does. In essence, they're typical teenagers, where he is a specialist. I'm kind of dancing around saying one specific word that I'm sure most of you are probably thinking of at this moment. There's a very specific reason why, but I will discuss this point just a fair bit. Christopher has what the book describes as behavioral difficulties. Most people would probably immediately jump to saying he's autistic, or that he has Asperger's Syndrome. This is a fairly common opinion about the novel, although Mark Haddon, the author, has not really gone out to say that his intent was to represent autistic people. He was meaning to tell, first and foremost, a story of an individual, an unusual individual in a society that was not exactly familiar to him. I'm basically doing the same thing right now. I can't speak for all people with 
autism or Asperger's or ASD, depending on what you're supposed to call it these days. And this is because autism is not a disorder or a mindset that can be defined with very specific symptoms. There's no one form of autism. Christopher presents a lot of different symptoms all his own. He tends to find patterns in things, first of all, like red and yellow cars, which he uses to indicate how his mood is any given day. He specializes in mathematics, or maths as British people put it. He prefers fact-based stories rather than fiction, with the only exception being the works of Arthur Conan Doyle. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, he doesn't enjoy metaphors or understand body language, and a lot of other specific things that are personal to him that he does not enjoy very much. He's aware of certain social conventions, but he doesn't really follow them very well either when he's talking to people. At times, he doesn't really have very good filters in terms of what to say and what not to say in a certain situation. At one point when he talks about stranger danger, he goes into detail about what stranger danger means. He has only one true connection, one real friend, in terms of a connection that he can talk to, and that is his teacher, Siobhan. Everybody else he either has a difficult relationship with, no relationship with, or he loves his family and his father specifically because... Who else does he know that he is supposed to trust in the world? Haddon has gone on record in saying that he does not define Christopher by any one spectrum, any one diagnosis. He rather focuses on Christopher as a character and what motivates him and what interests him. And in particular, in this case, what I find so appealing about Christopher is that he is determined to find a specific thing that he is completely unfamiliar with, but he but is entirely invested in. Once the dog, whose name is Wellington, appears dead on Mrs. Shear's lawn, he is intent on finding out who killed the dog and why. And in the course of doing so, Haddon actually realizes something that doesn't come across very well in other adaptations of stories with autistic people in the lead role. Rather than making the autistic person some kind of an individual who's a wunderkind, or, or they feel especially isolated on some level, ultimately Christopher is perfectly happy with his personal mindset. It's just everybody else who is the problem. The audience only sees from Christopher's perspective, which is very appropriate because from that perspective we are able to see other individuals in their very strange mentalities. Other people curse, other people accuse each other of unnecessary things, other people fight and shout, other people don't follow rules even though certain things are set in front of them, and some people are absolute liars. The ultimate argument of the story is that people are weird in their own way. Every individual is a strange individual, and in some cases, some people can be idiots. This is a very important message for people who have felt isolated, especially in their youth, and that their specialties, their interests, are what make them distinct, and they actually help you find some kind of an, a path that you want to pursue. 
of course, that path might not lead you in the direction that you want to go. And that's very much what happens in the curious incident, because Christopher, in searching for who killed the dog, ends up discovering other things that relate to his family and his upbringing that are very disturbing and unfortunate to him personally. One of the major absences in the household of the Boones is a mother. Christopher lives with his father, a working man, the guy who typically adjusts your furnace and so forth. His mother, however, is not there. His father told him two years ago that his mother had died, most likely of a heart attack. But as Christopher starts to look further into this case of the dog in the nighttime, he finds other truths deeply embedded inside of that lie. Christopher hates lying, and he personally is unable to lie unless he completely forgets something. When he discovers a truth that somebody has been hiding from him, it's practically the end of the world for him. He's able to distinguish between a white lie and an actual lie for certain. And in this case, his father might just be an absolute liar. The story occurs basically in two halves. The first half focuses almost entirely on the investigation into the death of Wellington the dog. The second half of the story, on the other hand, shows how much of a red herring everything in the investigation was up to this point. That breach of trust that his father has just broken is absolutely the worst thing that has happened to him at this time of his life. And he then becomes obsessed with finding the answers to what really happened to his mother. In the novel's case, all of this is recounted through Christopher's own writings. Literally the entire book is basically a journal that he has written for the sake of chronicling his investigation. A very unusual chronicle for sure, and not simply because every chapter title is actually a prime number instead of a typical 1-2-3 sequence. And it should be said that not only is this a very serious and powerful uh, discussion about Christopher and his struggles and his interests, but it's also surprisingly funny at the same time. Christopher doesn't strive to be funny. In fact, he starts the story by saying, this is not a funny story. And he's right on some level, except that to some extent, the reactions that people have to his behavior are slightly funny. He may not pick up on how people are perplexed by his differences, but we as the audience are. He never becomes the butt of the joke. If anything, the people who are reacting to him are often more obnoxious and more ridiculous than anything else. There's a very fine line that's drawn between uh, the different tones of the story, but they both fit it so well and are so well constructed inside of the narrative. There is something of a discussion to be had about the exact age groups that this story appeals to, and I will get into that once we start talking about the actual adaptation. But in terms of the appeal to the audience... This is an extremely strong recommendation for me. If you've ever felt isolated on some level, but never really felt the shame of being isolated, or you are looking for some kind of inspiration on some level, coming from somebody with a similar set of specific interests, but also 
difficulties in reacting and interacting with the world around you. This is an extremely effective and very inspiring, while also very wise discussion on that kind of point. So, once we come back, we are going to be talking about an adaptation that might be a little bit closer than I had initially expected it to be. There's something that I have to admit. I don't always do all the research prior to recording these episodes. But now that I have, I'll at least have something of a framework in order to discuss this. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Now, as I mentioned, I don't always do all the research that I should do in preparation. Prior to today, I was aware that the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime had always been considered for adaptation, ever since its publication in 2003. I'm even familiar with the actual adaptation that we have gotten from the source material, which is the stage play which won the Tony Award for Best Play in 2015. 15? I think it was 15. Probably 15. Prior to this point, I was actually aware of one name that was attached to be the writer of this film adaptation. Steve Cloves. If you don't know that name, he basically wrote your entire childhood as a millennial. Steve Cloves is the screenwriter behind The Fabulous Baker Boys and Wonder Boys, but also is more famously known as the writer of all but one of the Harry Potter movies. He only stepped down from writing The Order of the Phoenix because he had been focused on writing the first draft of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. What I wasn't aware of, however, was that not only was he the writer of The Fabulous Baker Boys, he was also the director and he's tied to direct this movie as well. Well, there goes my argument for Danny Boyle. Anywho. (laughs) I have not seen The Fabulous Baker Boys. I have seen Wonder Boys, and I did very much enjoy that when I I saw it as part of a class in uh, university. But I will definitely be looking into it to, to see what his style is, what his intent was. I know that it was a very acclaimed film when it came out. Still, the fact that we have not heard anything of the actual production of this story since 2013, which was the last time that I remember seeing an article posted about this thing, there's still a question of when is it going to happen and how it is going to happen. And specifically in this case, I need to note one major difference between the novel and this potential film adaptation. The novel is written by a British man. The adaptation is going to be written and directed by an American. We're talking about two very different audiences here. Haddon's novel is set in Swindon in England. It has a very dry wit, a sense of humor about this particular scenario and the people surrounding Christopher. But it also has some very strong resemblances to the actual mindset of a British person. 
There are elements of the story that have essentially earned it a banning in certain schools in the United States, in Tennessee, for example. The main argument against the actual novel is that it is vulgar. There are a lot of curse words, a few F-bombs, several SHs, and one C-word. That C-word. In Britain, these words don't have exactly the same connotation as in America, especially amongst younger people. Seriously, have you seen British kids uh, in any number of movies? They actually swear even more when they're five years old than they do when they're adults. Don't believe me? Just look at John Borman's Hope and Glory. They use the F-bomb basically as a sacred word. The vulgar language is certainly something that can be edited down, comparatively speaking, if you're looking to appeal this story to different generations. This book has been marketed to both young children and to adults. Well, maybe not to very young children, but teenagers, essentially, ten and up. The swearing can be toned down, comparatively speaking. What can't really be toned down unless you're deleting it entirely is Christopher's arguments against Christianity. Once again, atheism is not something that is uncommon in England. In fact, as of 2017, recent surveys have said that 53% of the British population does not follow any one religion. They could be agnostic, they could be atheistic, but they don't have that kind of association. This is something that Christopher doesn't necessarily reflect because he personally has arguments for the reasons why he does not believe in a creator god. He doesn't make these arguments for the sake of insulting anybody. It's just the way that he processes the world and the way that he reasons about the world which would work well in Britain and would probably get you banned in Texas. (laughs) The ultimate choice in this case comes down to which audience are you more interested in appealing to? Are you going to keep in all of these elements that pretty much define it as a British novel for British children to some extent? Or are you going to make it more marketable to Americans? Something tells me that considering how both of the producers for this film, in this case that would be Brad Pitt, they'll want to appeal to more American audiences. To be fair, those elements are probably a lot easier to remove than any kind of removing of the plot points and so forth. The plot for this book is very, very streamlined and simple all on its own. Characters move from one point of the story to the next point, Fairly, not predictably, but essentially very naturally. You can see the progression of each stage of the character's decisions, especially Christopher's decisions. And to be exact, oftentimes when Christopher is talking about religion, he is talking about it literally as an aside within the novel. He has several instances where he breaks from the plot entirely and just divulges his thought process. He's able to express all of his ideas, everything that he finds distinct about the world, and all of the views that he has about his surroundings, which other people might not have. 
Now, this is a really interesting, really in-depth view to take in terms of an author of the story and in terms of a reader. It gives the character a much more defined identity if you're able to spend time with him and listen to what he has to say. You don't really have that in a film. It does give uh, whatever actor plays Christopher a lot of really good research uh, in order to look into. Basically, what we're looking at is a young goodwill hunting kind of scenario where he's a prodigy of mathematics. He loves science and he loves all these kinds of specialized, interesting subjects. But they don't really have to be part of the text that is spoken. They can be inserted into lines of dialogue, like referenced briefly, but you don't need them to further the progression of the story, just to give the character more of a defined personality. What is also very fortunate about the way that Christopher describes the scenario that he's in in the book is that by Siobhan's insistence inside of this world's universe, she tells him to add as much detail about the surroundings that he has as possible. This would be a very easy film to design. There's already a lot of existing architecture that is probably still there uh, in Swindon and in London, which does become a plot point as well. And when there are specific elements to the design, it's described in great detail. At one point when Christopher sees a billboard, which is advertising vacations in Malaysia, he goes into detail about what exactly is on each of the frames of that advertisement. Advertisement. I don't know, I can't speak English anymore. He even has illustrations uh, drawn out for specific scenarios when he's map-making in order to get to a certain location, when he's going to a train station or inside of the train station. He will make a map, although sometimes he will admit it's not a very good map because he's under a lot of pressure and he's stressed because of recent events. This is actually very useful, however, when you are designing the world. You can go to any number of the locations that are described in the novel, and then you can use those as reference points to see, has it changed that much in the last 10, 20 years or so? It should be mentioned that this novel is actually set in 1997, which is actually a very good time to place it, because you don't have as much paranoia in the world entire, which, is, which results from any kind of real events. 1997 is a comparatively safe year in terms of a setting. So there's a lot of potential in terms of making this film accessible and very easy to make in terms of an actual production. But still, we need to go back to the main crux of the argument regarding what Christopher's condition is if he has a condition. When we're talking about autism in filmmaking, you definitely have a lot of examples, but not all of them are very good. Autism is the kind of condition where certain actors will look at it as an opportunity to overact, to overemphasize certain syllables, certain actions, in order to repeat certain motions and actions. 
This was something that was popularized when Rain Man won Best Picture in 1988. It was a well-acclaimed film at the time, but it's since become fairly divisive amongst people, and notably among people who study autism and discuss autism on a regular basis. Now, I have a decent enough admiration for that film. I respect it. It's not necessarily the best depiction of autistic people in terms of representing the wider number of people. Dustin Hoffman is an excellent actor, if problematic in the modern era, because I'm not going to go any further into that. Let's just say, in terms of the script, in terms of his behavior, in terms of his eclectic behavior and how he speaks, this is not how all autistic people speak. But unfortunately, it became infamous because it started to become associated with autistic behavior. And once again, he's depicted as a wonderkind or a wunderkind. There is such a thing as autistic savants, but they're not the majority of autistic people. And in the modern era, we have a lot of examples of characters who, whether intentionally or not, possess aspects of the kind of eccentric sort of autism, which... To some extent, Christopher is a very eccentric character, but it all depends on which aspects of his eccentricity do we emphasize as much as respect him as a character. When you look at a film like Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, that kid, I can't remember his name because it's been a long time since I saw that film. I remember the actor's name is Thomas Horn, and he plays the character well enough. He's a, he's a likable character enough. And he's not the most exaggerated depiction of autistic behavior. He does like maps. He likes solving puzzles. He does have that one little thing where he holds the tambourine up to his ear, which is interesting. Christopher has sort of a thing for white noise on the radio. It helps him calm down. And then there are movies that just exploit autism just for a ridiculous plot for no other reason. Did anybody else watch The Accountant with Ben Affleck? It's kind of ridiculous, to, to be perfectly honest. It's basically the born identity, but instead of short-term memory loss, Affleck's character is autistic. He's a very specialized person with a very specialized set of skills. And then you have Sheldon Cooper. Pause for dramatic effect. When I was younger... I had classmates who used to compare me in a positive way to Sheldon Cooper. Not necessarily because of the way that he treated other people, but because of his specializations, his interest in science and his very strong memory and his, well, his eccentricity, I suppose. I'd much rather be compared to Christopher Boone now because... He actually has human emotions, despite his detachment from other people, which Sheldon, my opinion of him and the Big Bang Theory in general, has soured ever since season... I don't remember. I stopped watching it four years ago. According to Bill Prady, Sheldon was not created for the sake of representing any kind of autistic or Asperger syndrome behavior. But at the same time, there is still the speculation that he might be 
and it's not the most positive image. Christopher, in terms of comparisons to these characters, is a lot easier to empathize with compared to everyone else. Not necessarily because he is empathetic. He doesn't necessarily express emotions to other people. He is very introverted. But it is still an easy way to empathize with him because we are completely invested in his personal perspective. We are not here to see other people's reactions to how he behaves. We do see it, and we are amused by their reactions, but we don't necessarily feel especially uncomfortable when he does something that is unlike other people. This was one criticism that I really had about Extremely extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. When uh, that kid holds up the uh, audio recording to Max von Sydow, the mute grandfather, and he's just begging him to stop, I started really getting angry at the kid for not stopping. There are certain decisions that need to be made by Cloves if he wants to ensure that the audience is completely on Christopher's side throughout the entire movie. It is very easy to get so immersed in the technique regarding Asperger's or autism and not necessarily realize what the essence of the character is, what his emotional journey is, and how he has to learn to connect with other people on some le- some level, despite how weird they are to him and how weird they are in real life in general. Ultimately, the story has to be about empathy. It has to be about him and how he feels and how he understands not necessarily the world, but how he understands his scenario and his feelings towards other people. And you don't need any kind of event or any kind of special, unique, or remarkable scenario in order to do that. He just needs to deal with a very simple human flaw that his father and his mother are quote-unquote guilty of. It's the simplicity of the scenario that Christopher is trying to understand that really sells this particular character in this world. It makes him feel so much more relatable and tangible when he is dealing with something as simple as the relationship between his mother and his father. And when he speaks honestly about it, it is very, very effective. He doesn't water down anything, partially by accident, but also because he can't water things down. He has to see things as they really are. And that kind of refreshing honesty needs to be maintained throughout the entire movie in order to ensure that we as the audience can maintain that empathetic connection to him throughout the entire runtime. You can change anything else, but do not change the character's journey. Now, we'll be right back after this break, after which we'll just have a little bit of fun trying to speculate who could be cast in this film just because I would be curious to know whether or not my ideas would actually be names that people are familiar with. We'll be right back.
again, everyone. What we're basically looking at in terms of casting for this kind of a movie would probably not be the most star-studded cast. To some extent, I feel like this is more a cast that would be akin to a television series, like Doctor Who or some such thing, or even a film along the lines of a Mike Lee movie. This needs to be a movie that does not really have too many celebrity names attached to it. It's better if it has character actors instead of huge movie star actors, because movie star actors will easily take the attention of the audience away from the subject of Christopher and his perspective. Again, I'm looking at the casting of Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close with the most American parents ever in Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock. I think both those actors are great, but you're involved in a movie with so many levels of touchy subject matter that I don't think that they were very helpful in terms of conveying a very visceral message. Now, if you're not familiar with the works of Mike Lee, who I mentioned just 30 seconds ago, uh, he is not exactly the most ideal director for this particular kind of a movie because his works have always been original works which have been created with the cast that he has in mind. He tends to improvise his scripts very much. But with that said, a lot of the actors and actresses whom he has worked with would be really exceptional choices for these kinds of characters, and they could lend it a sort of weight that other actors might not. They are more grounded in reality, comparatively speaking. He's the reason why people are familiar with actors like Tim Roth, David Thewlis, and Sally Hawkins, all three of which were actually names that I was considering in terms of a cast for this particular film. The main adult characters in the story involve characters like Christopher's father, Christopher's mother, Christopher's teacher Siobhan, and another lady whom Christopher befriends over the course of his investigation, whose name is Mrs. Alexander. Now, this is completely my uh, speculations on this point. This is not a statement that these would absolutely be the best actors for this particular job. But that is to say, I don't think that Tim Roth gets enough work these days. He is such an underrated performer, and I think that he has enough of the gruffness, enough of the weight, enough of the aggravation uh, that would be associated with Christopher's father without feeling too much of an antagonist. He's played villains before, but he is also capable of a lot more empathetic characters. He's like the British Willem Dafoe, basically. If we're going along the lines of matching his age in that case, probably the one uh, bigger name actress who I would consider for the role of Christopher's mother would be Naomi Watts. I mention her name because she has recently embraced more independent films than blockbuster films. She has made blockbusters. She was in King Kong. But she's balanced that work by working with directors like David Lynch and David Cronenberg and, and more recently with Alejandro Iñárritu uh, on Birdman. She's a really wonderful performer and once again, she's probably one of the most empathetic actresses working today. In the role of Siobhan, I would definitely put Sally Hawkins. She was just most recently so beautiful and so heartfelt in uh, The Shape of Water. 
I was considering casting her also as Christopher's mother. She could play one or the other, but I put Naomi Watts in the first role, mostly just so that she could match Tim Roth's age. But Sally Hawkins is just so endearing and so supportive and so kind in her presence in everything that she's made. Little aside, has anybody else seen Maudie? Please watch Maudie. I loved Maudie. And lastly, in the role of Mrs. Alexander, we finally have a Harry Potter actor, Imelda Staunton. No, think less along the lines of Umbridge and think more along the lines of Vera Drake. Staunton can play to a lot of different emotions if you look past that kind of image that she has from playing Umbridge in Harry Potter. By all standards, the kinds of characters that she has played are very divided characters. And you need that kind of division if you're looking for an actor who is going to play a character who basically drops a very serious truth on Christopher at a certain point in the story. And she has a lot of that divided nature inside of a lot of her characters. All of these actors are just names that I kind of thought of on the spot to some extent, because there are a lot of flexible different kinds of actors who could play roles in this film, like Emily Watson could be in this movie. And no, just to be clear, I did not mispronounce Emma Watson's name. Watch Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves and you'll see who I'm talking about. As I mentioned, David Thewlis. In fact, come to think of it, Cloves has worked with so many different actors through the course of the Harry Potter series that he pretty much has connections to every actor available. So it probably wouldn't be too surprising for somebody like a Julie Walters to show up or an Emma Thompson at some point. Oh no, wait a second, I think I got this. Mark Williams as Christopher's father. No, I don't think that we could go for a Weasley family reunion with this movie. Oh well, I tried. You're obviously picking up on the obvious uh, question right now, which is, why am I not talking about Christopher? For the same reason I'm not talking about Holden Caulfield. And even in the case of Holden Caulfield, I actually had an actor in mind who, at that age, could potentially play it, which was Finn Wolfhard. I don't have that actor in mind for Christopher. This is literally the kind of character who needs a fresh face, somebody who is unfamiliar to the audience. It's the kind of character who you could have seen a Nicholas Holt playing when he was 15 years old, or an Asa Butterfield more recently, but you can't really go back in time to cast them in these kinds of roles because they've grown up. They've moved into different areas. They've moved into specific genres and different character types. This character needs a specific kind of undiscovered quality from an actor whom we are not familiar with through prior exposure. In fact, I might actually recommend to some extent you need to cast somebody who has this kind of behavior and is familiar with this kind of behavior. There's less of a technical aspect to the performance if it feels like something that the actor is familiar with. Maybe if there are actors out there who have this similar kinds of experiences, similar kinds of interests and ideas, who are also interested in acting, it could help that you're connecting 
with an actor who is more connected with that subject matter. Does the actor need to have Asperger's or autism? Maybe not, but it would help to know that the actor himself related to Christopher on some level, outside of any of the eccentricities in his behavior, just in the style with which he connects with the world. Less method acting and more honest acting, I think, in this case. I have no authority on this point whatsoever. It's up to Cloves in order to decide who he wants to cast for these particular roles. I'm just kind of thinking out loud in terms of what might work better in terms of presentation rather than who could be used to sell this movie. This isn't a story that needs to be sold necessarily. It's a big best-selling novel. It has a lot of people talking about it, and you do have the play that was recently produced, which is creating buzz about it again. So in a way, you need to consider all of those aspects in order to consider how much of this really needs to be sold, quote-unquote. People like and connect with Christopher already on his own. He doesn't need any other specific marketing attached to him. You just need to show that this character is behaving in this way and maybe name him because it's a frequently read novel on its own right, so maybe just the name recognition of the character will be enough to get people to say, wait a minute, they made this movie? Awesome! The actor, in a way, is secondary to the character in this case. And that's not to insult any actors who would want to pursue this particular role. If you feel like you would be the perfect fit for this particular character, then by all means, once the casting call comes out, head straight there. In a way, Haddon created such a vivid character, not even in the way that Salinger wrote a vivid character. This is a vivid character in how specific his interests are and how all of his eccentricities and all of his interests define him while also creating a sense of human connection with the audience. These kinds of characters are enough for people to get interested in the material regardless of who is playing that character. For the time being, however... As I always say, we're in the dark. Just try not to look outside during this kind of dark. You might just end up finding a 15-year-old sleuth trying to investigate what happened to your poodle. Welcome to the Appendices, the segment where I look back on my old content and either expand on the subjects I couldn't discuss before, or just generally rip the episode you just heard to shreds. This is an episode that I like overall, and don't have much to add as far as content regarding the proposed English language adaptation is concerned. I like The Curious Incident quite a bit, and compared to other stories revolving around individuals that appear to have autism, 
I think it's more successful at being on the positive side of representing it. I should clarify something. I don't have a proper diagnosis yet, but I've lived with the likelihood of being on the high-functioning end of the spectrum for two years now, having seen three separate specialists who essentially agree on that front. I'd rather get a proper evaluation before I speak further on my experience with it. And I don't speak with any authority of how debilitating or otherwise the experience is for people with more extreme levels of autism. But I do care to a great degree about how the media portrays autism. This book is in the same club as two films I really like on the subject. Adam Elliott's wonderfully heartfelt animated film, Mary and Max, and the Oscar-nominated documentary, Life Animated. All three of these take the subject of autism and present living with it in a positive way. And they all do the work in ensuring that the audience is on the side of the autistic characters. If you want to know what I think falls on the far opposite extreme, I have only read the synopsis and listened to the soundtrack, but I don't find much interest in seeing Dear Evan Hansen, another story where the script doesn't clarify if the main character is autistic or not, but which seems to blur the line as to whether his actions are morally justified in the audience's eyes. The Curious Incident was an interesting case for me, because the first time I read the novel was in 2016, and I read it because I was auditioning for the play. It was a local production in Winnipeg, but I saw the synopsis and knew about it winning the Tony Award, and I liked what I heard about it, so I did my research and read the novel. And somehow, it was like somebody had actually stolen my likeness from childhood. And it wasn't just the basics, like how Christopher was not very interactive with other people, didn't like making eye contact, or saw patterns in the world around him. It was specific things. He's watching Blue Planet when he's 15 years old. I memorized those videos when I was in the fourth grade. He hates the color yellow. I especially hated yellow. My family used to have a refrigerator painted yellow and blue in the basement, and it pissed me off. How dare you defile the greatest color that has ever existed with this irritating, cheery, garish tone. So I was immediately of the mindset that this guy was some strange fictionalized incarnation of myself, so I had to play him. Then I botched one of my lines in the audition, and they got someone else. The actor they hired for the production gave a much more heightened performance than I would have, more exaggerated, and that probably fit better within the director's vision, but still, I really liked that piece a lot, and now I'm 26, and just too old to play the role. Shoulder shrug and move on with my life, I'd rather be the playwright than the actor anyway. Now I will mention one serious oversight on the part of my show. I talk a lot about English language products, or cultural touchstones that made their way into the Western consciousness. That's the reason why I focus a lot of my discussion on American or British productions, directors and actors and so forth, because I assume that most of the discussion about said adaptation would circulate in those countries. 
it should be fair to say that I don't tend to focus on other cultures and their depictions of Western texts. Which makes this a first on many fronts. Ladies and gentlemen, narrowly beating out our next episode subject, this marks the first time I get to talk about a filmed adaptation of a subject I've covered on this show. There is an actual adaptation of The Curious Incident available to you right now on Netflix. Although it doesn't actually name the book as an influence in the credits, which may explain some of the more notable alterations to the script. Anyway, this is Kia and Cosmos. It came out in March 2019, and it's notable as an adaptation for following a lot of the same beats as the original novel, just with a significant change in setting and character appearance. The film takes place in Calcutta in India, and the main character is actually an autistic 15-year-old girl named Kia, who lives with her mother instead of her father, and is investigating the murder of a pregnant cat. Not a dog. Like I said, no reference to the book in the credits. Now this isn't Dominic Noble's Lost in Adaptation, but since I should anyway, I'll give everyone a quick overview of its quality as an adaptation. Overall, I liked the film as a more dramatic procedural depiction of what I saw as a comedy drama. The film takes the straightforward concept of an autistic child who likes being a detective and takes it very seriously. All the basics of Christopher Boone are present in the character Kia, an interest in mathematics, an aversion to the color yellow, and a discomfort with being touched by people, among other things. She even speaks very bluntly about sex at several points in the film. Kia's depiction of autism is a bit more pronounced than the book. She walks with a hunch and speaks with a slur, and she also seems to have a physical quirk that she holds her pointer and middle fingers in a hook formation. This could be a stim, or it could be an effect put on by the actress. Pardon me if I mispronounce this name. Ritwika Paul, who does a good job at representing this version of the character overall. And the first-time feature director, Sudipto Roy, does a pretty good job at fitting in most of the major events from the novel into the film in a respectful and intriguing way. There's one minor addition to the script which involves a romantic subplot between Kia and a local boy, Rabi, which doesn't add that much, but it's pretty harmless. So for a while, I was thinking, why does Wikipedia describe this as a loose adaptation of the book? It seems to be following the plot pretty closely. Then they reach one of the major revelations of the novel, one of the big reveals. And it's taken a while to get there, so I paused the film. Holy crap! There's only 30 minutes left and there's a whole half a book still to cover. And the film doesn't really do that. Instead of going into detail about how Christopher formulates a plan to find out certain truths that were kept secret from him and also escape from his current situation, the film gives us a 10-minute montage where Kia basically goes on a journey without much indication of any real setbacks, either internal or external. 
The film was doing such a good job at presenting the book's whodunit plot, structurally going from point A to B to C to D to E, and then suddenly jumping all the way to H. This doesn't necessarily ruin the film for what it is, but it is odd to see the script go from thinking that Kia's thought process was key to the experience, to thinking, eh, let's just assume that she did that in a split second and see the end result of it. Overall, I do like the film for what it is. The actors are well-suited for the roles as written, and the original score is very endearing as well. However, it's a much more successful adaptation of the first half of the book, more than the second half. That's the majority of subjects I wanted to cover regarding the curious incident. However, just to round this out, I want to jump further back into the very start of this episode. I listed a few films from 2018 that I had been anticipating that were based on books. And amongst their ranks was one that I just so happened to cover on this show, in a very specific episode, which you're not likely to have access to for a very long time. This is going to be the only opportune time for me to talk about this, so I might as well do it now. If you're wondering how I reacted to the other films I listed, Annihilation blew me away, and I did not hesitate to gush over its gorgeous existentialism for the rest of the year. A Wrinkle in Time wasn't a total disaster like some people made it out to be. It was just a misguided attempt to adapt a book full of very abstract imagery. Mortal Engines was a movie I really liked looking at, but aside from the fact that I had never seen a zombie revenant monster adopting a human child so that he could assimilate her into his race before... I found the characters and plot to be dull and derivative. And the girl in the spider's web, I never saw because I never read. I've got a lot of love for Elizabeth Salander and a lot of respect for Claire Foy, but I still haven't made it that far into the novel, so I can't say I want to watch the film for a very long time, or even at all considering its critical reception. But now, we get to it. Ready Player One. I recorded an episode about the Spielberg-directed adaptation with three of my colleagues from Red River back in April 2018. It was one of, if not my very least favorite episode. I didn't really do as deep a dive into the material as I wanted to, mostly because I understood that my guests had a much stronger connection to the book than I did, and I liked the book well enough but I was also aware of the backlash and controversy surrounding both the novel and the film, notably regarding their depiction of nerd and gaming culture. Is the film too sanitized? Is it sexist? Does it promote gatekeeping? These were valid points to make for sure, and the younger me definitely wanted to explore that. But outside of those points, if I'm being honest, my main criticism of both sources even though they're both entertaining in their own way, is that they aren't really about the nature of nostalgia. They're just nostalgia. I'm fascinated by the idea of exploring what makes someone connect with a work of art at a certain point in their lives, and how that affects them as they move on through life. 
Ready Player One, on the other hand, is mostly just a wish-fulfillment fantasy for people who consumed those things when they were kids, wherein the total investment in them is the key to finding success and happiness. Great! But do those things actually matter to Artemis and Parzival outside of the egg hunt? They may have mattered to Mark Rylance's character at some point, but what does it matter to them? I'll admit, it's fun for me to think that I could win a prize for having memorized Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But I memorized it when I was 13, firstly because I liked it, and secondly, I wanted to entertain people. I was not great at communicating with people in traditional ways, so I decided, eh, I might as well embrace something ridiculous and try performing. Does Parzival actually have that connection to the material he's memorizing? Or does he just want to win the big cash prize and get the girl? Ultimately, the film and the book are mostly just about an endorphin rush, where someone mentions something for the 80s and you're supposed to think to yourself, Oh! I recognize that thing! Yay! These kids, as far as I can see, don't have very interesting personalities outside of their online personas. What stories and ideas actually matter to them, and why? Why would they stand up for them? Why would they defend them? Why did they matter to them in the first place? And what's the point of holding on to them years afterward? Because believe me, I know something very real about that. Anyway, that's the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to engage with this discussion in any way, if you have a suggestion for what subjects you'd like to hear more about, or what stories I should look into as potential episodes, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram at DASkyThor, you can like this show's Facebook page at Adaptational, or you can send me an email at adaptationalpod at gmail.com. That's adaptation, A-L, pod as in podcast, at gmail.com. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of the East Village Opera Company, so thank you very much to those guys. Next episode... Pray for my soul, ladies and gentlemen. It's Angeloid Weber's Cats. I produced this episode before the truth was revealed to me, so all I can do now is just look back with sad nostalgia at a time when I didn't have to distinguish between my enjoyment of the musical and the thing it's now become. Here's hoping I can sit through listening to this one with the minimal amount of cringe. In the meantime, keep those pages turning, and I'll see you next time on Adaptational.